the government wanted to limit John's influence, so they banished him into isolation, putting him out to sea about an hour, 60 miles out to sea uh, on a small island called Patmos. They thought that removing him from fellowship, separating him from the body, would be the last of him. Out of sight, out of mind. They could have killed him right away, but they thought this would be a slow, lingering death. Besides, he was a harmless old man. What damage could he possibly do? John never missed the habit of finding a place where he could get alone on the Lord's Day and bow down before the king. It's the first day of the week. He found a, a little niche in a grotto and spent time in worship, spent time in prayer. And he wasn't expecting this, but all of a sudden he heard this roar of a voice behind him saying, come up hither, come up here. Turned to see who it was. And there was the Lord Jesus standing mid-sky. Suddenly the grotto disappeared. The sound of the waves disappeared. The wind stopped. The smell of the sea left. All of a sudden he's in the spirit realm. And he sees Jesus in a way he's never seen him before. And he's surrounded by menorahs, Jewish menorahs that are all aflame. There's seven of them. He's surrounded by them. He has seven stars in his hand. But he looks different than he's ever seen him before. The first time he ever saw him, he was camping when John was preaching along with everybody else. And they would just make little temporary tents in the wilderness. As he was walking by, all of a sudden, John got really animated, and his voice began to, to quiver, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And all eyes went to this lone finger, figure walking across the dunes. John's eyes brimmed with tears. No one forgot it. John had to follow him and find out who this is and, and went to his tent, went to where he was camping, saw him be baptized. The next time John saw him, he was sitting on one of his boats, many nets. All of a sudden, down the coast came this lone figure. And he looked at him as though... He loved him completely and waved with a hand and said, follow me. And John just left everything. And he and his brother began to follow him. He'd seen him many times in many different ways. He saw him walking on water one night. He saw his eyes burning with anger as he turned over the temple tables. He saw him walk in the synagogues and Demons jump out the windows like fleas on a dog. He saw him lots of different ways. He saw him a glow 
on the top of a mountain called Tabor where they had walked up and they'd spent three days on a personal retreat, fasting and praying. And they looked over Jesus as he was in prayer and his, glow, his, his clothing glowed. But this was different the way he's seeing him today. He saw him one night as he walked through a wall. His body was marked with scars and holes, pierced, broken. But his face was radiant. His eyes were ablaze with love. And he spent the next 40 days with them talking about the kingdom of God, explaining the kingdom of God. And then one day they all started walking and they went out to a, a familiar, isolated little village on a hillside. As Jesus was with them, they watched them begin to leave the ground and move up slowly. And next thing you know, they saw the bottom of his sandals and him looking down at them. And all of a sudden, he swiftly went up out of sight, up into the clouds. And two angels that were standing among them that joined that party said, just as you've seen him go, you will see him come back the same way. But the way he sees them this day on Patmos is different than he's ever seen him before. He's never looked like this. He's, John's probably one of the closest friends that he had on earth. But he'd never seen anything like this. He's clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded across the chest with a golden band. His hair was white as wool. His eyes were flame with fire. His feet were like fine brass, refined in a furnace. His voice was the sound of many waters. He held those seven stars in his hand, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as bright as the sun, shining in its strength. He spoke to John and said, everything you see and everything you hear, I want you to write out. These are the things that are going to take place shortly. So John was commissioned to write a prophecy, a revelation. And the revelation in part was to the seven churches that John was the apostle over. He didn't start these churches. Paul started one, and then from that one at Ephesus, six others were started because he stood in one spot morning and night, teaching and teaching and teaching. And young men and women, their hearts came afire, and they went out and they spread out through all of Asia Minor, starting one church after another. Many of them had never even seen Paul's face before. And Timothy was put in charge of it when Paul left, and then Timothy, when he went to prison, every, everybody who claimed to be an apostle all of a sudden showed up with their business cards wanting to take over and take the influence of these amazing churches. Something happened where John came and brought Mary with him, who he's charged to look after until she died, and, and together they lived at Ephesus. There are seven, or seven churches that Jesus was concerned about and interested in, and he wanted to, to write letters to them. He wanted to do it through John, from the Father, through Jesus, to John, to the churches, to the pastors of the seven churches. 
And he wanted them to know. And so John sat down, and, and, and one of the first things he wanted them to know is that, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he's the king of, of all the kings of the earth. The second thing he wanted to know is that he proved his love for us by the way he died for our sins. If you ever wonder whether God loves you, all you have to do is look back to the cross. He can't say it any louder. He can't say it any clearer. He can't say it any more personally to you. He died for you. He wanted them to know that he's coming back again. Only this time, everyone will see him. Not some small band outside of a little village called Bethany, but everybody on earth will see him. And those who pierced him will be so grieved. And people who mocked him and, and denied him and resisted his love will be so grieved at the heart when they look upon him, they find out that he's real. It was all true. And he wanted the churches to know that he's always been and that he will always be and that he is almighty. John's reaction to these words was that he fell down like a dead man, like a, just a sack of coal, fell down, no strength, couldn't move, couldn't speak, and just trembled his face to the ground. Jesus walked over to him and touched him and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead, and behold, I live. I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and death. They told him, he gave him a commission. He says, I want you to write everything that you see, everything you've seen, and everything you're about to see. Then he explained the mystery of the seven stars. He said, these are the, the leaders of the churches, the seven churches that he holds in his hand. What a revelation to know that, uh, that Jesus can control and Jesus can hold and Jesus can keep the leaders of the churches. He also said he wanted them to know that he stands in the midst of every church and he looks and he listens to whatever happens in those meetings. One of the reasons we stand, Rodney had you stand this morning, is we believe that Jesus is in our place. He's in our midst. He's here. It's not a, it's not a, a thought, it's not a nice thought. We believe it's true. We believe it's literal. And he wanted these seven churches to know, I stand in the midst of the candlesticks. I'm actually listening. I hear. I hear what you're thinking. I hear what you're saying in your heart. I hear what you say in your meetings. I hear what's being taught. I hear how you relate to each other. I see it. I stand in your midst. You can't see me, but I'm there. And he wanted the churches to know this. So John left that place feeling the holiness of God. The whole experience, there's no time, there's no way to measure time, there's no way to describe how long it was. It seemed like it lasted forever, but it could only have been a very short time. 
He made his way back to the place that he had made as a home on the little island of Patmos. He got a fresh skin of parchment and a quill and some ink. And he began to write, just as Jesus told him to. He said, I, John, your brother, and a companion in tribulation, a companion in trouble, and the kingdom of God and the patience of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm here because of my testimony. I'm here because of my testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I saw, and he began to write what he saw, what he experienced. And he began to list the names of the seven churches. John knew each of these churches well. The first church he wrote was his own congregation, his home church, people who he knew best. You can read this in the second chapter, the book of Revelation. Everything I just described is in the first chapter. This is the mother church of all the other churches. And he wanted some things. Um, he wanted some things laid out for this church that was going to be a pattern for the rest of the churches. Each letter, by the way, would you ever want to read a letter from Jesus to our church? Don't be so quick to say yes. He began each letter with a clear description of himself. The word revelation is to take the lid off of something, to expose something, and he wanted to reveal something of his heart for every church. And so he described something of himself. And, and uh, so the first thing he described to the church of Ephesus is about the holding of the stars and standing in their midst in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Then he described what he knew about them, what he saw, what they were like, what their character was like, what their, what their uh, lifestyle was like. And he did this to each church, describing so that they knew that he knew them. He saw, he heard, he knew what was going on in church. And then in most of these letters, he begins with a, a, a way of commending them a commendation for things that he liked, things that he admired, the things that he liked most that he saw. He often started with that. And then he'd go into something specific that had to change. There was no guessing. Even when Jesus speaks to me to these days, I never have to wonder what he's after. I know because he's specific. And he says, this, this has to change. It's like a little mini judgment day because this is public. This is the way this, these letters were read to all the churches. Everyone knew what was going on in the mother church. Everyone knew what was going on in the church down the road. Everyone knew these, these letters, and we would know them for the next 2,000 years. And we'd know their strengths, their weaknesses. We'd know their struggles. And it was like a little mini revelation of, of, of their true condition, a little mini judgment day. While there is no condemnation from Jesus, there was a thing called conviction, and there is no way to get around 
what he was saying. They, they had to all they all they could do is just say simply, "It's true, it's true." And he would warn them of consequences if they didn't change. And then he'd move to promises to give them the incentive, the boost that was needed to change. And this is how Jesus will speak to you. He's never changed his manner. When he visits you and he speaks to you, he'll begin by commending. He'll begin by telling you what it is that you're doing that's right. And then he'll get into specifics and you, you don't have to guess. Then he'll lay up promises with warnings, promises mixed with warnings. We need both sometimes to pull into another gear. We need both to go up higher. We need both to go further. We need both to go deeper. And Jesus serves his church this way. So if you go with me to chapter 2, let's look at the church at Ephesus. He starts in, he says, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, your patience. I know that you cannot bear those that are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not. And you found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That's an amazing commendation from the Lord. Would I ever like to have a copy of that test? How are they tested? How they determine who was really an apostle and who wasn't? That'd be fascinating to read. Maybe that was in 3 Timothy that we never saw. Then John began to write this. Nevertheless, I have this against you. And everyone's heart stops. You've left your first love. You've gotten so busy with working for Jesus that you forgot Jesus. You've been so busy doing everything for the kingdom that you lost sight of the king. That can happen for Christians. That can happen for churches. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. It happens. And it happened to this great church, one of the greatest churches on earth at this time. He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works. I don't know how to say this except simply to say it, but most of my efforts, most of the stuff that I do for my own spiritual growth and development is just trying to get back to do the very things that I did when I first fell in love with Jesus. When I first met him, uh, all I'm trying to do is keep trying to get back to that simplicity. I didn't know anything. wasn't raised in a Christian home. didn't have any Christian advantage at all. All I knew is that I, I would spend time with him in worship, spend time with him in prayer, miss meals, spend time in his word, continually just try to be honest with him as where I was at and what I was thinking and ask him my questions and, 
And it was just that simple. And, and here I am 40-some years out into this, and all I'm trying to do is get back to what I experienced when I first met him. Easier said than done. Repent. Or else I will come quickly, and I'll remove your lampstand. And that should make us shudder, and maybe, maybe it made them shudder. If you've ever seen a church with no light or life or liberty, you've seen a church without a, life, without a lampstand. Many of us have been in some of those churches where there's just God isn't speaking. There's no illumination. There's no revelation. There's no life. I, I saw a church that was alive that lost its light. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And we can never take it for granted. It's possible to lose that. He said, I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And it's an insight, it's a revelation that there are things Jesus hates. And he's not using the word in an inappropriate way. There's things that he hates. He doesn't hate people, but he hates things that people do. And I, I'm not going to break this down any further as far as who the Nicolaitans are and what they were doing, but Jesus hated it. He says, you hate it. I'm glad, that, I'm glad at least we have that happening between us. I commend you on that. Well, the church is made up of many people. It always comes down to the individual's ability to hear what the Spirit is saying. And you'll be judged and I'll be judged by how I hear. So he reminded them, he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then he lays in this promise. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. An angel, last time there was a revelation about the, the tree of life, there was an angel guarding it so that Adam and Eve and those who had a fallen nature couldn't come back and live forever. And somehow it's disappeared and, and Jesus said, it's in paradise. It's a, it's, a real, it's a real tree with real fruit and you can now have access to it. Nobody else was ever allowed to have access to it, but I promise you that you can taste of it, live forever in the paradise of God. Powerful revelation. Jesus wants us to overcome. He knows that we overcome when we have something to reach toward, when we have something to put our hand to, something, to, something that we want. I don't even know if the, most of these promises to the average person doesn't appeal to them. Most people aren't thinking. They're not waking up every morning thinking, man, I, I can't wait to get my hands on that fruit. Can't wait to get to that, that tree. But when there are people who aren't able to get there, and you are, or someone else is, you'll want it. You'll want everything about it. You'll want to be there. You'll want to see it. Amen? I'm not sure if I've lost my place. I thought there was a little bit more to that. Okay. Let's go to the next church. Take some time with this. 
It's the church at Smyrna, Acts, uh, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. The church in Smyrna, I want you to write, and he uses the same basic formula for each of these churches. He starts off with a revelation of who he is. He says, I'm the first and the last. In other words, he's always been. There's no one before him. There'll never be anyone after him. He's the first and the last. When my kids were little one time, and we're having our little quiet time together before we went to sleep, they said, Dad, where did God come from, and how did he, who, who was his parents, and how was he born? And, and I said, he's, he's always been. He never had a beginning. He's always been, and he'll never cease to be. My middle son went, you're giving me a brain freeze. <laughs> In other words, he couldn't get his head around that. But isn't there something secure in knowing that the one who loves you and the one who cares for you and the one who invites you to come and pray has always been and never ceased, will cease to be? He's eternal. He's almighty. I was he who was dead, and I've come to life. No one could claim that like Jesus. Then he starts in. He says, I know your works. I know your trouble. I know your tribulation. Being a church and being part of the kingdom doesn't stop you from having trouble. Being a Christian, and, and some of us sell it wrong. We sell, you know, sell it, come to Jesus and all your troubles will be taken care of. <laughs> the church of Smyrna, what he wanted them to know, he says, I understand your trouble. I, I see it. I know, I know your stress. I know your pressure. I know what you're feeling. And sometimes that's, it's not that it goes away. It's knowing that he knows. It's just knowing that he knows. He said, I know your poverty. Then he said, but you're rich. They didn't have two little mites to rub together. They had nothing. They were poor. He said, but from my, my perspective... And it's perspective. And, and I think when he said, come up hither, come up here, I think what he's saying is, John, come see what I see. Come see the way I see. I see differently than anyone, anyone else. You need to see through my eyes, and you need to write it so they can see what you saw. And you can, they can see what I see. And he says, I see that you're incredibly rich. I remember going into uh, some extremely poor homes, and we had this wealthy brother who, uh, who was with us. And he was so envious. He said, I just want to sell everything I have and go live among those people. He said, they have nothing. They have nothing, but they have everything. He was astonished at how rich they were, how rich they were with a quality of life. It's hard to compare. He said, I also know what people are saying about you. I know they blasphemy you. They say they're Jews, and, and they're not. They're from the synagogue of Satan, probably the greatest uh, rival to their life, the greatest thorn in their side, the most difficulty they ever had was a synagogue in town that was constantly speaking against them, speaking against them, railing against them, blaspheming. Jesus says, I hear it. I hear what they're saying. They say they're Jews, but it's, it's, not, it's not an ethnic thing. It's not a culture thing. It's something from the heart, and that's what's missing. 
He said, I don't want you to fear any, things you're, any of the things you're about to suffer. And that's profound. Uh, people teach sometimes that, that Jesus will work to prevent you from suffering. And in this case, he said, it's about to happen. I just don't want you to be upset by it. I don't want you to be afraid. It's going to happen. It's not like he's going to stop it. He's going to prevent it. There's nothing that they can pray. He doesn't want to stop it. I, listen, can I just say this? Christianity is about suffering from the beginning to the end. The life of Jesus was a life of suffering from the beginning to the end. And we've made it something cushy and comfortable, something cozy and nice. And, and so then when something happens to us, we fall apart and we quit the race. Christianity, listen, Christianity is about suffering. If you want to be like Jesus, you will suffer. If you want to be like Jesus, people will speak against you. People will say awful things about you because of Jesus in you. And we need to, we need to resign ourselves to this. There's some things you're about to suffer, and I don't want you to be afraid. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Sometimes you don't know what you have under the hood. You don't know what kind of Christian you are. You don't know what you're made of. You don't know what's really what God has even done in you until you're tested. There has to be a test. <laughs> Many of you have had, had a little bit of heaven this week on a retreat. Don't be surprised if this coming week it's revealed to you how much you've grown by a, 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 an instant, a, a circumstance, a, a conflict, something that someone says or something that someone does, and you step back and say, man, have I changed? Uh, before, I would, have, I would have mouthed back. I would have slammed the door. I would, have, I would have done something different. God has done something in me. Well, the only thing that reveals that is the test. Can he test you without you falling apart? Can he test you without you quitting? Can you, test, can you be tested by the devil? He said, the devil's about to test you. Sometimes I don't know whether it's the devil or whether it's God testing me or if it's my own stupidity that got me in this mess. I don't know. But really, what difference does it make? Your response has to be the same regardless. Don't be afraid. You will have tribulation. You take apart the word tribulation. It starts with pressure. The next part of pressure is stress. You're going to have some stress. And Jesus is telling them this. Jesus isn't saying, and I'll, I'll make it go away. Pray a little prayer and I'll take care of it. He's saying, it's going to happen. And I'm watching. And I know. And it's going to last a while. And he doesn't ask for their permission. He just states it as a matter of fact. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Because it's not about this life down here. This life down here has a mixed, it's a mixed bag. There's lots of stuff, good and bad. But then there's this moment where you stand 18 inches in front of Jesus and he is so proud of you and he 
is so pleased with the outcome of your faith and how you ran this course down here that he sets on your head a crown of life, one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. I taught this one time up, up north, and a, a guy come up with a big beard and a lumberjack shirt and big, big boots. He says, I don't want no crown. I wouldn't wear a crown. He's not the crown kind of guy. I didn't know what to say. I'd never heard anyone say that before because this, this is one of the most powerful promises that Jesus could, could think of. I never heard anyone say that, but it didn't fit his image. Before I could think of anything to say, a guy standing nearby, he spoke up. He says, oh, yeah? He says, when everyone's throwing down their crowns, you'll want something to throw. When everyone's throwing down their crowns. We say, the only reason I'm here is because Jesus helped me to get here. You'll want something to throw. Amen? He that has an ear, let him hear. It's all about hearing. Your whole Christian life is about hearing. It's how you hear. It's not us as a church. It's you as a dad. It's you as a father. It's you as a mother. It's you as an individual. It's you as a young people. You can't blame anybody for how you turned out. You can't blame anyone for your Christianity. You can't blame anyone for how deep you go in God. You can't blame me. You can't blame the church. You can't blame your culture, your background, your denomination, you can't blame anyone. It's all about hearing. It's all on you, how you hear. Amen? You have no other response. If you have ears, you can hear. He that overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And later on, he explains what that second death is. These promises, they, they're, they're odd because they're not something, he's not promising, you know, things that they're kind of, they're, they're mystical in a way, but I wrote them out one time and said, I don't know what this is, but I want it. I want, I'm going for this. I don't want to be hurt by the second death. And he lays that out as a boost to propel them towards overcoming. Notice the promise isn't for church members. Notice the promise isn't for Christians. All that aside, it's not for Christians, it's not for church members, it's not for Protestants, it's not for Mennonites. It's for those who overcome. That's what he's looking for. That's overcome what? Well, overcome the pull of this world, overcome the stuff we get into, the, 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 the stuff that's trying to hold us back, everything that the enemy lobs at us. There's a war for your soul. The enemy does not want you to get there. He does not want you to make it. There's, a, there's opposition. There's obstacles. And, and someone says, yeah, there's stuff that's against me, but I'm going for it. And Jesus' chest swells because he just sees you trying. And, and even though this has happened, this has happened, this is a disadvantage. You don't have this. This isn't working. This is an opposition. And he says, but look at them go. Look at them go. They're not stopping for anything. They're coming toward me. They've never seen me, yet they live for me as though they have. That's everything to him. It's everything to him. Your faith is everything. And that you overcome the pull and all the, all the stuff down here, because you're after something you've never seen. You've been told, but you've never seen it. Well, he loves that kind of faith. That's everything to him. 
everything. Beginning in verse 12, he talks to the church at Pergamos. Right to the pastor, the leader. Actually, he doesn't use the word pastor because some of the churches didn't have pastors leading. They had apostles or they had other, other people. So it's the word messenger. Uh, God never has to write to an angel that's always before his face. Writes to an angel in the earth back to him. He doesn't have to do that. The angel is the word messenger. It's all through the Bible and other places. And uh, it's, actually, it's actually just simple messenger. It gets translated angel. These, say, these things say he who has a sharp two-edged sword. So he describes something of himself. There's something about Jesus that when he speaks, it, it just separates everything. It cuts, through, it cuts through all the stuff, and it's just so clear and so sharp and so fine. I love the way he speaks it. He just says it so clearly, so simply, so precisely, with precision like a scalpel. He says, my mouth, I have the sword. And he says, I want you to know this about me. I know your works. I know where you live. I know where you dwell. You live in a dark place. You live in a place where it's spiritually dank. In fact, it's, it's, it's a place where Satan is ruling and has his throne. And I want you to, uh, uh, you hold fast to my name and you do not uh, deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Can you imagine, can you imagine our sweet little fellowship here where we know each other and we love each other and where our families are close. We've, we've grown up in the Lord together. Can you imagine one of us being martyred? What, what that would do to the church? What that would do to the, the psyche of the church? What if one of us was killed for our faith? I mean, it, was, it, would be, it would be tough. He says, I know what that was like. I saw, I was there. I watched you as you went through that. Antipas, we all loved him. And he was martyred. I watched, I, I, I saw that happen. And I saw how difficult it was and that you didn't give up, you didn't give up your faith. It doesn't matter what happens to us. We will lose loved ones. And Jesus is watching. He wants to see that we keep faith. It's his faith. It's not even ours. It's his. He said, you didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. And everyone at that moment stops breathing. This is Jesus. This isn't the pastor speaking. This isn't even John speaking. This is Jesus saying, I have a few things against you. And all of a sudden, you're, you stop breathing your heart skips a beat, and you lean forward to find out what does Jesus have to say about us. Because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to commit spiritual immorality, fornication, Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. 
Jesus knows our doctrine. And as a pastor, I can't control what everyone believes. I can't, I can't hardly control what Heather believes. <laughs> and I don't want to. I, I'm just trying to deal with my own beliefs. There's things that we watch. There, there, we have so much access to teaching, so much. Some people say, I'm a fan of this guy and the other. I'm a fan of this ministry, and I'm a fan of, you know, and, and some of us gravitate to people who are already dead because they won't disappoint us. We can't control, even in a little church like ours, what you believe. But Jesus sees it. He knows. He said there are doctrines that lead to sexual sins. There's doctrine that leads to immorality. It's like something happens that says it doesn't matter what I do. I'm free. I'm, I have grace. God loves me, and I can go ahead, and I can, I can cross this line here. And Jesus says, I see it. I see it. And there's doctrines that I actually hate. There's things that you believe I hate. See, he hates anything that hurts us. He hates anything that holds us back from him. He hates anything that prevents us from walking in purity and walking in his full embrace. He hates anything that's going to rob you of your reward of heaven. He hates it. There are some things Jesus hates. There are some things you should hate. You could say, well, I'm not supposed to hate anything. There's some things you should hate. And if you don't hate it, it'll hurt you. There's things you have to hate. There's doctrines you have to hate. Jesus did. I want to be like Jesus, don't you? Repent. Or else I'll come too quickly and I'll fight against them. Talking about church members with a sword. I'll come into your church as a king with a sword and take people out. See, there's doctrines in these three letter, in these uh, seven letters, these three chapters. There's doctrines here that we don't hold today. There's things that Jesus believes that we don't believe. There's things that we believe that he doesn't believe. But he's talking about Christians. He's talking about church people. He's talking about one of his churches at, at, at uh, Pergamos and saying, I'll, I'll come in there and I'll deal with it. I will take, I will take my sword the sword of my mouth, and I'll fight against them. I, you don't want Jesus fighting against you. You want Jesus fighting for you. For he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To him that overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I bet there isn't a single person in here that craves hidden manna. I was just reading that. I'm in Exodus right now, my own personal study in and he told Aaron, he says, take a, take a bunch of that manna. You know, if they kept it one night, it would turn to worms. It would stink. It would become slimy. It was awful. It was hideous. And uh, yeah, he says, uh, God says, he says, take, take and get a jar of that and put it in the Ark of the Covenant so people can see it for generations to come. They'll see what I, how I fed my people, how I sustained them. And then Jesus himself later on refers to himself as the manna of heaven, the bread of heaven. And so he says, I'll let you eat of the hidden manna uh, that he has in heaven. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that tastes like, except I want it, don't you? I want it. I want anything that he deems valuable, anything he deems important, I want it. Let's look at one more church, and we'll stop. 
right to the leadership of the church of Thyatira. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I had a, a man that I knew one time, and he spent 40 days fasting and praying. That's a long time, right? I mean, you just did four days or whatever it's been, and, and that's four days is a long time. Forty. Can you imagine 40? Water only fast. He went deep. He wanted to get close to the Lord. I asked him, I said, what, what happened? He says, well, he says, he said that at the end of it, he said, all I saw was uh, these feet. He said they were just shiny, like they just glowed, like they were just coming right out of a furnace. He said, I saw these feet. I was on my face. I could see the feet of God. And the, and the Lord says, I'll make the, the place of my feet glorious. Jesus is talking about his feet, feet like brass. He says, I know your works. I know your love level. I know your service. I know your faith. I know your endurance. Can we just stop there for a second? We've just gone through, you know, since last March, so it hasn't really been that long, a bit of a trial. Some isolation some inconvenience. Some of us couldn't get a haircut for about two months. How well did you endure? Patience. Patience is translated cheerful, hopeful, endurance. It's not, uh, do you remember seeing a poster? Those who are kind of our age remember a poster of a cat hanging on a wire that says, hang in there, baby, you know, where you just hang on. It's not that kind of thing. It's not just hanging on. It's, it's, it's hanging on, but with cheerful, hopeful endurance. It's saying it doesn't matter what they lay at me. It doesn't matter what they throw at me. And there's this hopefulness. There's this, it, it's, not, it's not with you're not gritting your teeth and just enduring it. And he says, I see your endurance. And I think we could, we could look at ourselves and what we've gone through and the fact that you have to do all, this, all these crazy new rules for living, stuff we never dreamt of doing. How well did you do? What's your endurance level? And the reason I ask is because, you know, none of us liked it, obviously. And some of us have suffered worse. And there's people, I, I, there's people I'm in touch with around the world. It is. I wouldn't want to be. I wouldn't want. I'm so glad we're here. This is easy. This is a. This is a buy. This is nothing. There's other places that have it far, far, far worse than us. But what if it's gonna get worse? What if it will get worse? What if liberties and things we like and things we love and things we're entitled to and things that are normal, things that are, we've just taken for granted. What if we lose those? And then we have to kick into another level of, of, of endurance. I don't know that what's going to happen. I just know that it's likely the longer we walk with him and the longer we walk toward the end times, it has to happen. It has to happen. 
But we get so cozy in our lifestyle and we have our rights and our freedoms and our privileges. And sometimes, sometimes it makes our, it, those things are true. But what if it reduces your ability to endure? Jesus said, I see your level of endurance. I see, I see what you're going through. I see your love. I see your service, your faith, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. And boy, that's what you want to hear that. You're growing. You're not the same. You're, you've, you've, you've moved on. You're, you're doing lots more now than you did in the beginning. That should be true. Nevertheless, everyone's heart stops beating. I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches will know that I'm he that searches the minds and hearts and I give to each one according to your works. That's strong stuff. I, I, I was always afraid of the book of Revelation. I, there was a promise that Jesus gave in the beginning. Blessed are those who, who embrace this prophecy. I mean, there's a blessing. There's a blessing in the book of Revelation. that There's no other book that starts with that, that kind of promise. But I was afraid of it. There's a lot of parts of it I didn't understand. But what I did understand was the first three chapters and the last three chapters. And I just camped out there. And I couldn't read these three chapters without being convicted. I couldn't read these three chapters without my fear of God increasing. It would make me tremble. Jesus knows. Jesus sees. There are consequences. There are consequences for what we do. There are consequences from him for what we do. I need to hear that. I do better. I, I, I live better when I know that. And any teaching that kind of comes in that, that tries to reduce that, that makes him look like the big daddy-o in the sky, and you can just, he's your buddy, and, and he never convicts and never touches anything, never says anything, allows you to get away with whatever you want to, you, you ought to hit that on the head and throw it over the fence. It is, it is a, a terrible teaching, but it's in the church. People are... Especially if you come out of a legalism background where, you know, it was, it was to the other extreme, it's possible to go to the other extreme and nothing matters and you can do whatever you want and it doesn't matter and there's no consequences. That's not, that's not what Jesus believed. I don't believe in a spirit of Jezebel that rules the world and it's bigger than the devil himself. I don't believe in any of that. That teaching's out there as well. I don't think that was Jesus' issue here. And let me just say this briefly. I don't want to make a big thing about it. Jesus didn't have an issue with women teaching. Otherwise, he could have said, you allow women to teach in your churches. He didn't say that. It was about this woman. 
It was this woman taking authority that she didn't have and using that authority to cause people to sin. That was the issue. He could have solved the whole women in ministry issue. All he had to do with one little line says, because you allow women to minister. This is a first century church. Women in ministry was not an issue because it was all grace. And Jesus could have said, you allow women to minister, but he didn't say that. It was this woman doing these things, taking on authority that she didn't have, using it to seduce people. That was the issue. Now I say to you and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as who do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden but hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. There's no question about it. Jesus is coming back, and that's, what we, that's where we set our faith. That's where we set our hope. That is a fact of life, and we have to, we have to set our sights on that. We have to let that truth down into our heart, and you might say, well, they've been saying that for 2,000 years. Why should I set your heart, my heart on that? Because it'll save you. It'll keep you. It'll help you. You need to set your heart on the fact that he's coming back. He could come back tonight. There's nothing stopping him from coming back tonight. He could come as a thief in the night, unexpected, come tonight. Wouldn't that be wonderful that this would all be wrapped up? But he says, hold fast to what you have until I come. He that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over nations, and he shall rule them with an iron rod, and they shall be dashed in pieces like the potter's vessel. And that was said about him by one of the prophets. As I have also received from my father, and I'll give him the morning star. I don't know what this is. I don't crave that kind of authority. I don't know what that is. But if it comes from Jesus, I want it. I think what it's talking about is in heaven, there are jobs, there are responsibilities, there's things to do that carry over from here. You're not just laying on a, on a cloud all day like a naked little chubby baby playing a harp. That, no one wants to live that kind of life. There's jobs, there's responsibilities, there's things that he gives you to do. That's what you'll want. You'll want Jesus to give you something to do forever. And that's what he's promising them somehow here. Just like he has a responsibility, he wants us to enter into that. He that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen? Let's stop here. Why don't we stand? I didn't know how this teaching would come out today. I didn't know whether it would work or fly or whether I could get through it or whether how it would land on you or on us. But there's a blessing that Jesus said. Blessed are those who hear these words. Will you hear them today? Will you let them down into your heart? Will, they let, will, will you let it put the sobering fear of God inside of us? Me too. We all need to. We need to let our kids hear these things. We need to embrace what he's teaching, what he's trying to work in these churches. These are real churches, and, and we should have braces for our church. Let's pray together. 
Lord, move us as a people to your holiness. Move us to your, a, a place of sanctification, a place of being set apart. Lord, from the pull of this world, I'm asking that you forgive us for the times that we've skirted around this and we've, we've imbibed, we've, we've, we've embraced, we've tasted, we've gotten sucked into the pleasures of this world. I'm asking, Lord, that you forgive us. I'm asking that you cleanse us. I'm asking that you'd set us on a different footing. Lord, that you'd raise us up higher. I'm asking that you'd waken the hearts, the eyes of every heart in this place to see what you're really like. Give us a revelation, oh God. Give this church a revelation of you. Jesus, I know you're looking here. I know you're listening. I know you heard this sermon. I know you saw what was going on in our hearts and in this meeting. Jesus, we want, to, we want you to like what you hear. We want you to love what you see. We want to please you. We want to live for you. Help us to overcome, oh God. All of us have obstacles. All of us have, has stuff happened to us, stuff we don't understand. God, help us to pull out and go for the promises that you've set before us. We want to see you. We want you to be pleased. We want to put a smile on your face. I'm asking that today would be a fresh beginning for us as a people. I'm asking, Lord, for every young person here and every, every family that's here, I'm asking for a fresh beginning. God, mark time by this day as we enter into this new year. Mark time, Father. Give us a fresh beginning to live wholeheartedly for you no matter what comes. Help us, I pray. In the name of Jesus.